Hey, I'm Jan. And I'm Jared. And we're both librarians at Manhattan Public Library. Welcome to the second season of the Read MHK podcast. Read MHK is a community-wide reading program aimed at building connections through books and sharing experiences with each other. Each month, we speak with a local community member, talk about books based on the theme, and offer reading suggestions. Our theme for this episode is military life. Fort Riley was established in 1853 four years before Manhattan was incorporated, and is located just down the road. From the low rumble of artillery practice that makes you check the weather to make sure it's not going to rain, to the distinct haircuts and uniforms worn by members of our community, Fort Riley is inextricably linked to Manhattan. Our guest today is Chad Morrow. He is the husband of Cassidy and dad of four kids, one married in Germany, one a freshman at K-State, and two boys at home a native of New Orleans who joined the U.S. Air Force at 21 in 2001 with assignments in four states and deployments in six countries. Retired this month, his family is settled in their downtown Manhattan community and enjoy finding old and new ways to live life with local friends. When he's not working, Chad likes to... Hang out with friends, do local stuff like the events in downtown in my neighborhood, I enjoy walking the older streets with the nice big trees and neighbors all around to meet and do a loop around City Park. It's one of my favorite things to do. We have run into you a few times. <laughs> that in is your right. Wanderings. And the first book you remember reading as a child is? Ooh, um, you know, really, I, <laughs> I didn't read a lot as a, as a child. I think probably the first book I remember was probably... 12-ish years old uh, reading, and it was kind of like the, a detective short story type of uh, book. And I just remember this uh, scene with uh, this tall luxury apartment building all by itself along a lake with trees mm-hmm. all around. That's how mm-hmm. I envisioned it in my, uh, in my mind. But it, I found it really captivating, but it just wasn't a habit that I had growing up. So yeah. Maybe a Hardy Boys or something like that. Hmm. Possibly. Yeah. I don't remember the name of it. It sounds like a classic library question mm-hmm. where you vaguely remember <laughs> some aspect of the story, maybe the color of the cover. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I, I mean, I think that's the important thing about, you know, reading is that just the way it kind of makes you feel and the way you create these scenes in your own mind. It may not even be the scene that the author has in mind whenever he or she draws it up, but in your own, you get to create your own in a lot of ways. Especially, you know, since that was your 12-year-old self and you still remember what your 12-year-old exactly. self thinks. And I love that. I, I still have my 12-year-old version of Narnia in my brain. Right. Even though I've watched the movie and read it several other times, I still see what I saw back yeah. then. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, like a feelings or emotions pinned to that experience of reading the book. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Absolutely. It's a warm, a warm feeling. Yeah. Earlier today, I was trying to remember what movie was playing in my head, and it was part of an audiobook that I had been listening to a few weeks ago. So it was the scene that I had made up in my head, but in those weeks that have passed, I was thinking it was a movie I had watched. Mm. You made a movie. Inside your own head. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. Do you remember who or what got you into reading? Well, yes, I do. The Air Force did. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. So I joined and I went in without any expectation of what type of job I was going to have. 
So I went in what's called Open General, and it's kind of a joke in the Air Force that if you become Open General, they're going to make you become an Air Force cop that has to go and guard missiles out on the prairie, and it's very cold and lonely and boring, you know, et cetera. But I actually ended up getting a job I never even thought of having, and that was a all-source intelligence analyst. I joined, like I said, willing to do anything. I was like, maybe I could, like, build something. I know people in the Air Force are smart, so, you know. <laughs> I, you know, I can't do all these other fancy things, but I could build a building or a house or something, you know, whatever they, get, they got going on in the Air Force, you know. Well, so they started in this career and they were like, okay, what is your thoughts on this event that occurred in the world? And I'm, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't have any understanding of the world outside of, you know, a kind of provincial view growing up. So I had to learn and uh, do a lot of reading to, to understand the world that I was being asked to analyze what was, <laughs> what was happening in it. That's really cool that that's where they stuck you. They were like, hey, this guy looks like this is where he would be good. And you're like, okay, sweet. <laughs> right, yeah. And so it's funny considering what I'm now doing after retiring from the Air Force. Growing up, we never owned a computer. I graduated in 98, and computers were definitely around mm -hmm. in people's homes. And, you know, people were getting on, online and all. But they definitely weren't ubiquitous. And we never had one in our house. And part of the requirement for getting through the training you know we had all this reading and tests and everything we had to do and then we also had to work on charts and all be able to plot things out and all that but the part that I found almost impossible to pass was the typing test and so because mm -hmm. I had never mm -hmm. been on you know a computer really for any extent of time and so the training's like six months and so they have everybody do the typing test right off the bat and I do it. I'm just like doing the pecking thing, you know, <laughs> and I fail miserably. And they're like, okay, this happens sometimes. You're going to be on the computer every day. We're going to test you again at the end and, you know, you'll improve and you'll probably pass. So go through the whole thing and the whole training program and go to do my typing test. Luckily, it was just me and this sergeant that was in the room observing me doing the typing test. And I did it, and I'm pretty sure that I was far short of the minimum requirements <laughs> needed. But he was just like, all right, great job, Aaron Morrow, you did it. <laughs> but, yeah, and so now fast forward 20 years. I mean, everybody's on computers every day, really. But my whole job has always been in front of a desktop workstation doing the Intel work, and now I'm doing cyber intelligence. So I went from having zero experience whatsoever, even typing, Mm -hmm. And then by the time I retired, you know, I'm moving in a career field all wrapped around cyberspace. So Are you still a successful hunt and pecker or have you <laughs> all the fingers? Uh, no, I do. I do use all the fingers. I'm not one like Cassidy, my wife. She, you know, just type away and not ever look down. I do look down, but I think it's more out of habit and all. And I do think we all have our idiosyncrasies, but I think, do y'all do this? If you want caps, you hit caps lock, hit the button, and then hit caps lock again, or do you use shift? And we then use, I use shift. Yeah, everybody uses the shift. <laughs> I always do the caps <laughs> I always do the caps locks, and so sometimes I'll hit it, and I just type and type and type and type. And, You're uh, like, really? I'm not yelling. <laughs> yeah, and I look back, and I've written like three or four lines, and they're all caps. I'm like, son of a gun. <laughs> and there's been several times I was like, all right, Chad, today's going to be the day we're going to start working with shift like everyone else does. It's never stuck. Still use caps lock. I'm only a left shift person. 
you're supposed to, depending on what so hand you're hands. using. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I, I only use left shift. I mainly use left, but I think I use both. I think if you've never taken like a keyboarding class mm-hmm. at all, that that's it. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember my keyboarding class, my like junior year of high school. Granted, we had like big old typewriters and stuff, not telling my age <laughs> at all. <laughs> but I think if I hadn't had that, because it teaches you how to do the shift and all of the different things. And right. Caps Lock makes doing passwords tricky. It does. Because mm. then you have to remember to take right. it off or it screws the whole thing up. I make things harder for myself, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what book has left the biggest impact on you? Probably Jane Jacobs' Death and Life of Great American Cities. So I grew up in a, like a company town on the outskirts of New Orleans, and it was kind of just a small suburban working class little town. And I went to high school in uptown New Orleans, and they have all these beautiful buildings in an urban environment and all. We have a streetcar that goes down St. Charles Avenue that my high school was on. And so it was this whole experience of being in an urban environment that I didn't even really register why it was significant to me. But I just always felt like it was more alive down there and just that, mm-hmm. like so many more things could actually happen. You know, mm-hmm. it was exciting. And so years later, I don't know, it's probably 2006, 2007 or whatever, was exposed to the, the title. And so read it and it, all, all these things that I kind of felt growing up, I was able to link to some of her, her theories and all. And little did I know, it's kind of like a seminal book for urban planning and just urbanists in general. And it's a touch point for so many different things in our modern world. And it's been really something I've been able to reference so much throughout my life. So my return on investment in that book was was really great as far as <laughs> Yeah, it just is always, you know, allowing me to understand the human environment a lot better. And also, I don't know if y'all know much about Jane Jacobs, but I really think that she should be someone that, as Americans or North Americans, because she ended up moving to Toronto in protest of the Vietnam War, but I think she should be celebrated as like a model of citizenship within our, our country. So she was from Scranton, Pennsylvania and moved to New York City with her, I think a sister or a girlfriend and just kind of experienced the world. And it was like a kind of like me going sort of to my high school and being in a different environment. She experienced that kind of excitement and all and kind of gave her a love for the city. And she ended up marrying this man. I think he was an architect or something. He was involved in that environment. And she stayed at home with their kids And she had no formal training. She liked writing, uh, but she had no formal training on like city planning or architecture or anything like that. And she just through her own observation and her experience and her desire to understand the world through her writing, developed this really prescient understanding of our cities that all these trained professional, mostly men, were not able to understand. Like she saw where this thing was going off the track. And in fact, she was living in Greenwich Village and she was the main person who stopped Robert Moses. If you're all familiar with that guy, he's basically the guy who who built all the elevated freeways through New York. And if you see an elevated freeway in a, a city that's like torn the fabric of the city apart, that's inspired by Robert Moses's work in New York. So she saw that this, and this is early on, this is like in the 50s, right? She saw that this is terrible for American cities. And so she was rallying a lot of the stay-at-home moms in their neighborhood to say, hey, we can't have an expressway coming through our village. Um, it's going to destroy everything. And so they rallied mm-hmm. against it. And really, they had preserved Midtown and Lower Manhattan from having these expressways 
driven right through them. And it was kind of the beginning of the end, though it took a long time for American planners to understand that, and the writing of her book as well, to understand how fragile urban environments can be when we had these big transportation projects being driven right through them. So she's somebody I think should be celebrated because that's a pretty incredible citizen to not even be trained to do this. She's observing her environment and has the confidence to be able to put out her ideas and rally people to use the system in order to stop this big monstrosity from coming through. So it's pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, every city where you go through and you see the bigger highway, even like Seth Child and Fort Raleigh Boulevard, it stops the walking distance. You know, my kids walk down to the mall, they walk downtown, they do all of that. But you're not going past Tuttle Creek Boulevard or Seth Child or anything like that. So, yeah, that's yep. really interesting. I'm totally looking that book up. So is that why you live downtown? Yeah. Um, okay. yep. But those basically those two connections with the mm-hmm. uh, my experience in high school and then reading her. And, mm-hmm. yeah, it's exactly why. And I do. I, I love living downtown. It's fantastic. And especially my block. I don't know. if you, Are you all familiar with Walk Score? Have you heard of this? No. I so think a, I've, I've seen something about that. So it's this website. I mean, it's not perfect, of course, but it's this website that has this algorithm where you can have your location in a city and it looks at the different resources or whatever mm-hmm. that, are, that you can walk to, like a, a full grocery store, schools, churches, libraries, all these different amenities that are around you. And depending on how far away it is and how well-connected it is to be able to walk, Mm-hmm. they'll give you a, a walk score. And so my block is a 91 walk score out of 100. And if you mm-hmm. if you go on um, Midtown Manhattan, mm-hmm. it's right about the same walk score. So, oh, really? Yeah, oh, that's cool. It, I mean, it's an incredible amount of things you could walk to from right here in Manhattan. And, yeah. and of course, it's much cheaper here than if you live in some <laughs> like San Francisco or New York bit. or, you know, whatever. It's a lot more affordable. So from my spot in downtown, I walked here. It's like a six-minute walk, maybe, to the library. Uh, Hy-Vee is maybe about the same, five, six-minute walk. The whole mall, mm-hmm. <laughs> which malls are usually on the periphery of a town, but the way Manhattan was developed in the 80s, they put it right there at the end of the downtown, which was an interesting move. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. And so all that's there, and our downtown area on points is really coming alive in the last few years and it's super easy to walk to those places i mean it's like a block and a half Mm -hmm. and all the uh, restaurants and uh, bars and my haircut place and all are all all down there that's super nice and the city park is maybe a 10 minute walk you know not bad so i think that's something that more and more people are starting to value it's like how much of an integrated life can you have based off of where you live that, that doesn't require you to get inside of a car and be isolated from your, your whole environment. Because some of the best things, like whenever I run into Jared and Carol and Etienne, I'm walking somewhere. We're not rendezvousing on purpose, but I'll mm-hmm. run into them and we'll chat and catch up or whatever. And actually, they were walking around the other day and me and my friends were playing Crokinole. Yep. Crokinole on, on the porch on, <laughs> in Sopo. <laughs> and, Sopo. Yeah. Um, That's south of points, for those of you who don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to call uh, our side as the uh, Nodo. Nodo. Yeah, like north of north downtown. North of downtown. But I think Nopo would. It just sounds doesn't sound right. Yeah, it can be not the right ring. No, right. no park. No. No park. <laughs> Nopa. Nopa. Well, I think Nopa. the uh, the official designation for the city is West Park. Yeah, I, I think. think that's yeah. 
but so yeah i was like okay to me that's like kind of that suburban thinking like mm. Mm-hmm. We want to have access to greenery and everything, you know, this sort of thing. So we're going to emphasize that, and it'll sound better if we call it after the park instead of downtown. Yeah. I, I don't know. But anyway, so what I was saying was if you're able to walk to all these different places, there's a lot of serendipitous interactions with people around you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe they're friends you already know, or maybe they're somebody that has a T-shirt of some team that you like, and you spark up a conversation and you get to know them that you wouldn't uh, run into otherwise. It just makes your life more colorful and integrated and yeah i really enjoy it my family really enjoys it so yeah that's because of the book in large part that's really cool mine is just because i hate driving to the west side of town <laughs> <laughs> i walk to work and that's pretty much it and i walk everywhere i really i drive maybe once a week and that's, that's about it and then of course my kids drive to high school i'm like <laughs> you guys can totally walk my youngest is like will you come pick me up I'm like no you're like 10 minutes from home, you can walk. Yeah, my high schooler would do the same thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep. I would, too. <laughs> I still have West Side in me, so. Oh, it's still there. Normal. Yeah. Yeah, it's but still there. We're working on it. Why the motorized bike is kind of yeah. like a nice little bridge. Yeah. Bridge, a little, yeah. nice little gap there. Eventually, I'll switch to not motorized, but <laughs> it's too fun. And then when ATN gets bigger, he can be the... Yes. He can he can give you a ride, and then you can pat him and poke his back. <laughs> Do you dog your pages or write in your books? Hmm. It's a controversial topic. Yeah. I think mostly I do neither, but if a book has margins that are just, like, enticingly big, <laughs> <laughs> I'll start writing stuff in them. But no, I, I typically don't. Well, I guess the dog ear, you're thinking about, like, referencing something. Mm-hmm. That you've already read. When you said dog years, I was thinking as a way to mark your spot. That's that's what I either. assume. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Like instead of a bookmark, you would dog mm-hmm. ear. You use a dog ear. Okay. Because there wouldn't be an either or, right? No. It's like, do you dog ear pages or write in your books? I know. Do you do but what I'm, so what I'm saying? What I'm saying is. <laughs> what I'm saying. Jared read the <laughs> So that would lead me to believe that you're using the dog ear in order to reference back to something that you wanted to note. That's in the right? Name, right. Instead, instead of writing in the book. Could be. Yeah. The idea is do you deface books? Mm-hmm. Is adding content to a book defacing a book? <laughs> it's not, unless it is a if library book. If it's your book. book. If it's, it's your book. Well, you could bit. be enriching it for your own use, but. Well, okay, so if, <laughs> for instance, Jane Jacobs, she's now passed away as of like 15 years ago, but if she came to the library and checked out one of her books and then wrote in the margins, would you be like, Miss Jacobs, you have defaced this book. <laughs> you will now pay a fine. Or will you be like submitting she's it to some archive, it. like, hey, this incredible author has added to her work, and then this needs to be studied for future knowledge of, if she could provide proof that she was the author, I think we might believe her. She was Why the last wouldn't you one believe to check her? it out? <laughs> yeah, if it was on her, her account, fa- her, believe her. her face is literally on the back. We could compare it. <laughs> okay, this your hair is looking a little different today. Yeah, I think we'd allow it. I would replace the copy. Right. And then maybe put that one on display. You'll have to talk to Crystal about that. Don't tell Crystal. Don't tell Crystal. Yeah. <laughs>
describe your ideal reading location or setting? I actually like coming into the library just to read it. The um, kind of plush chairs near where you have the new nonfiction books and all. I guess on the east side of the library. I find those to be nice. You, you like tucked away, but you kind of could still feel the uh, energy of the library. I feel like those are the types of environments that I, I like reading the best. Something cozy, but where you're kind of like in the action, you know, like a coffee shop kind of place. Really like a really great cozy coffee shop is like the ideal reading spot. But those are kind of hard to curate, I think. Mm-hmm. I need that background activity because as I get older, reading puts me to sleep. So if it's a completely mm-hmm. dead environment, I'm going to fall asleep if right. I'm reading. So if you have that background activity that can kind of keep you active outside of the book, mm-hmm. it helps a lot. Yeah. Yeah, so the coffee shop thing, I've been appreciative of Flight Crew coming in. They have more comfortable chairs. A lot of the uh, coffee shops in town, I'm like, hey, the coffee's good, but I feel like I don't have nice, comfortable chairs. I don't know if they don't want me to sit down for too long. <laughs> I think a lot is geared towards like students and stuff right. coming in to study and they need a table and chairs. Or... Right. No, I could see that. Yeah. But I would like some comfortable chairs. You just carry one with you. <laughs> you carry, no, you can't carry a comfortable <laughs> chair with you. I'm talking about a big, nice, plush, if you get maybe leather bike, chair. You could pull one. There you go. Mm, with the trailer I'm getting from Jared. Yeah. Smart. Okay. What role do books, stories, or libraries play in bringing a community together or even creating a community? Well, I mean, I think it. You kind of answered that before, you know, talking about how you just like to hang out. Right. No, I think a library is very important with building community these days. I think it's something that a lot of people are hitting on. And I think stories in general, whether it's a story from an actual book or not, I guess maybe not, but the story that the community tells of itself, I think, is vital to having a strong sense of community, you know. Like, for instance, if in the north downtown area, if people have a story of, well, there's houses that are rentals and are not being taken care of, and this is a transitionary place for me before I can move out to a nice, fancy suburb somewhere, mm-hmm. versus people that have an idea of, hey, this is a valuable place where I can walk around to these different places and they have unique people that live here that I get to know and see in our day-to-day life. And there's opportunity to bring some homes back to their past glory. You know, that's a different story instead of something where you want to move to somewhere else. If you have the, the second story, you're more likely to invest in the people and the structures in your community. I think we're very lucky that we have the community that we have and that the library is placed, I think, in the middle of it. Since we are by downtown, we're not far from K-State. You can get on Fort Riley Boulevard and go out to Fort Riley by the high schools and the park and all of that. So I think we're kind of in the middle of it, at least in my world. Yeah. (laughs) Can you tell us a favorite memory you have related to books or libraries? I don't know. It's kind of an ongoing memory, I guess. But my wife, Cassidy, she does and always has. Our oldest kid is 23. Might be 24. I'm not sure. <laughs> 90, she's 99. She has always been really great with reading to them at night. And she and the kids really love children's books, you know, and just the illustrations and everything and the stories and all. And, you know, that makes me have a lot of good memories of me and Cassidy raising the, the kids. And now Cassidy's a social worker at the uh, Manhattan High School Ninth Grade Center. Oh, cool. But yeah, she, she's always been really great at that. And so children's books to me uh, make me think of how great my wife is with raising the kids. 
That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> okay, now we're going to switch gears a little bit and find out a little bit more about you and focus more on our subject, which is military life. So why did you join the military and how did you choose the Air Force? So I had never contemplated joining the uh, the military before. I didn't, had no one immediately in my life that was in it. I had no exposure to it whatsoever. And 9-11 had happened and I really didn't have a whole lot going on anyway. And so <laughs> I was like, well, let me uh, join the military. And I thought of the different branches and just my conception of what they were. And I was like, the Air Force seems kind of laid back like I am. So let me try that. And I want to say it was like two days after, maybe on the 13th, that the recruiting center opened back up. Mm-hmm. And so two days after 9-11, I went in and started the process of joining the, the Air Force. And within three months of September 11th, I arrived to basic training in San Antonio, Texas. And what was the other part of your question? I thought there was two parts. Oh, why did yeah. you choose the Air Force? Oh, yes, and that, I, that, I answered that. That yeah. answered that, it was, yeah. Mostly out of ignorance, but I thought it was <laughs> <laughs> it was laid back, and so I joined it. Matched Were you in college at the time, or just working? I was just working. I was kind of in one of those um, went through some college, not done yet, and I really didn't do very good when I was in, just because I would like set my classes for like after lunch, and I would still oversleep and not make it to the class. So, yeah, I was a terrible totally uh, student when I was younger. So, anyway, I was in, like, this middle space where I always wanted, I was like, I'm going to finish college, but I was, like, maybe a semester or two not going. Mm-hmm. And I was working a, a job down on the West Bank of New Orleans when September 11th happened. You mentioned that hadn't really contemplated it. You didn't have close family that had been in the military before. So, was it a surprise to your friends and family when you announced that this is what you were going to do? Yes. And, I mean, if you could put yourselves back in the mindset of an American on Mm -hmm. September 12th or 13th, whenever I told my mom that this was my plan, she was very upset Mm -hmm. uh, that I had decided to do that. And also, they too had no experience with the military. So, like, for instance, if my kids today were to say, hey, I joined the Air Force or whatever, I want to join the Air Force, I'd be like, Okay, well, here's some different career options. You know, it's like I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't be afraid. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's how my mom saw it just because the whole world was so uncertain at the time. I could totally see that as a mom if my kid had come and said that right after that. Right. Because I remember that time and mm-hmm. I remember uh, thinking, you know, people were joining and, and things like that. And I'm like, they're just going to like send them just like right over there, you know, and that's just what I had in my brain. So I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Your mom just yeah. saw you. Well, they they definitely sent me right over there. But <laughs> that's horrifying for your poor mother. <laughs> Did you ever have any second thoughts about joining the military? No, no. I, I kind of was always like a I don't know if unwilling service member would be the right way of saying it, but I joined to do four years and go back home. Right. I was just like I'm gonna do my part, mm-hmm. but I I had no plans of making it a career. And in fact, I have this memory. We had a um, a party at my mom and dad's house for all the family to come over just before I going to basic training. And my dad gave me a card. It said something to the effect of congratulations on your new career. And like, okay. I had never even contemplated it as it a career. A... I was just, it was basically the service that I was going to do to do my part, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. That's how I kind of thought about it then. 
And so, yeah, I was coming back home to New Orleans. You know, I don't know if you know, <laughs> New Orleans is a place that definitely has a pull on people that are <laughs> from it, from there. And it's like every time that I was coming up for another reenlistment, I was like, I, I'm going, you know, I want to go home. But, you know, I met my wife shortly and the, our two girls are hers from a previous marriage. Taylor was like five and Haley was one when I started raising them. Now 23 and 19. We had met like maybe a year before my first reenlistment was done. And so, you know, it was like, oh, we can get married and all. And so now I have a whole family. And so I was like, oh, I got to stay in. My plan was always different, but I never regretted being in. And my dad's card would actually definitely make sense now, considering I just retired from a 21-year career in the Air Force, something I was every step of the way was, you know, planning on getting out and going back home. And now, you know. Do you think he saw that in you maybe that, that he saw something that you didn't quite see yet? I don't know. I kind of, I'm thinking that I was such a slacker that he was just kind of hopeful. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, maybe they'll keep him for a while. So he was like, this is the place for you. Awesome. (laughs) Then my brother had, in retrospect, he had been considering joining the, the military. He's uh, 15 months younger than me. And uh, he had been considering it, but was like too worried how my parents would take it. Oh, yeah. And this was before, you know, before September 11th and all that. There was no real impetus for him to, to make the decision and tell mom and dad. So whenever I joined, they all drove out to San Antonio for my basic graduation. And my brother was uh, working on mimicking some of the uh, facing movements and all the, you know, we get trained in basic training. And he joined like a week after he got back from seeing me graduate Uh at basic training. And he's still in the Air Force. He's, I think he's, yeah, he's almost, almost to 21 years, but he doesn't plan on retiring anytime soon. So he's definitely all in on the Air Force. That's really cool. Yeah. That's really awesome. (laughs) Did your parents take that one better since you kind of broke the ice? Yeah, I think so, but I was kind of out out of the loop considering I was at basic training and then tech school in San Angelo, Texas for that six months. So you said one of your preconceived notions Mm -hmm. for the Air Force was that it was possibly more laid back than the other branches. Did the reality of it match up to that expectation? After basic training in tech school, definitely. It is a more laid back service. I mean, it's very professional, but we have our own culture. We see it as being much less uptight than some of the other branches. A lot of servants, especially soldiers, whenever they have their kids wanting to join the military and they're like, I'm going to join the army, you know, following the footsteps of my dad. Their dad's usually like, you know, actually, why don't you look into the Air Force? (laughs) So we, uh, we make sure we remind soldiers of that. Whenever we see them, you know, because of the whole inter-service rivalry. Of course. Of yeah. course, you got to have that. Yeah. When you're out at Fort Riley, which is primarily an Army base, right? so you're kind of maybe the envy of the base because they get a look right. at you. And yeah. Say, and there's all this misinformation that they have on what exactly it means to be an airman. Oh, really? For instance, I've, I don't know how many times I've been told that I'm so lucky because I get more basic housing allowance. It's a standard thing for whatever you're rank is and what duty station you're at so everybody gets the same amount but 
there's this thought in the army that somehow the Air Force gets more of it. <laughs> like four or five different guys that come up to me. Man, you're so really? lucky with all this cash. Yeah. You're like, well, why are you in the army then? Yeah. <laughs> why well. didn't you choose the Air Force? <laughs> but yeah. As we mentioned in your bio, you've had assignments in four states and deployed six times. Would you say that's a fairly typical experience? And that seems like a lot, but you served over 20 years. So is yeah. that like a normal mm-hmm. kind of? Well, I think the permanent duty assignments for an enlisted member, it's probably on the lower end of normal. I would say someone 21 years enlisted is probably five to six assignments. Oh, really? Okay. Whereas officers are, especially after they've been in for like four or five years, they're getting reassigned like every two years. So okay. it's quite a, a difference. You know, if you know people in the service that are officers and they have kids, it's quite a, a churn, but they have a lot of community support within their, their own groups of officer friends and all. Kids have very similar experiences. and So the permanent duty stations... That's pretty typical. I actually um, took a, a deployment in order to be able to stay basically another tour at our first duty assignment, which was where I met my wife and all. So we had actually stayed there for like eight years. That was oh, uh, okay. Fort Walton Beach in Florida. So we were there for like eight years, and then we went to Charlottesville, Virginia for three, then to San Antonio, Texas for four and a half, and then the remainder were here, which was close to like five years. Okay. Yeah. And, and then, so the deployments, I've been to six countries, I think, on my deployments. And I, I've kind of lost count, but I think between like 10 and 12 deployments. And that is very high for like the kind of general population, but it, for a very specific year group of people coming into the military, especially the, in the Air Force too, because some of our deployments are chopped into smaller pieces. Oh, okay. That's probably on the upper end of normal. <laughs> and it depends on your job and all, right? For instance, if you're serving, doing cyber warfare stuff, a lot of times those guys are doing their job from back in the States. You know, they don't have to go out okay. forward to do them. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas if you're like security forces or something, you get deployed and you have to be out face-to-face with the adversary or whatever. Okay. It varies, but yeah. it, it was quite a lot for a while. I did most of my deployments in that first eight years at Herbert Field. That's the home of the Air Force Special Operations Command. I was with the uh, AC-130 unit mostly, and we were doing pretty regular tours out to Uzbekistan and then Afghanistan and then also went to Kuwait and Iraq and Romania. I went for the invasion of Iraq and I did a year assignment. <laughs> so this is an insight into military life that you might not hear. <laughs> so, <laughs> so newly married, right? Had two girls with me and Cassidy. And we bought a new house, right? And this is just before the housing meltdown, mm-hmm. the housing mm-hmm. crisis. And it's in Florida. And so it's one of the worst places in, in the country. So we bought this like just several months before Everything just melted, wow. right? And they had all the major hurricanes in 2005 and six that hit Florida. And so the homeowner's insurance was going way up. And so we bought this house and we ended up getting like a loan that they probably shouldn't have given us the loan, right? And the homeowner's insurance was so much and then the housing prices were going up. The taxes were more than 
we anticipated. So the mortgage, I want to say, was like six hundred dollars more than we thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. And I am a senior airman, I think, at the time. So very low ranking, not making a lot of money. The only income in our family, and this house is six hundred dollars more than you know in two thousand seven money. Mm-hmm. Uh, six hundred dollars more than what we thought. We had this picture of me like in <laughs> angst, like in Cassidy's like on my shoulder, like her head on my shoulder. And we, I don't know why this picture was taken, but in our collective memory, this is the picture of me whenever I found out our mortgage was going to be so much more. <laughs> <laughs> so trying to figure out a way to pay the mortgage, right? Yeah. Um, I called Cassidy from work one day. I was like, hey, they're doing this surge thing in Iraq and they're looking for people to volunteer for a year to go to Baghdad to do the interrogation stuff. And I was like, you get hardship duty pay and hostile fire pay and it's tax free, you know, all this. And she was like, oh, if you think that's what we need to do. And so basically I took uh, the year deployment to Baghdad in 2006 to pay for the the mortgage of the house that we just (laughs) bought. And it was way more than what we were anticipating. So, yeah. Decisions. Life decisions. (laughs) Still to this day, we're we're just like, cannot believe that we had a mortgage that was that high. There was no way we could afford it. Yeah. You know? Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> I think we were like 26 or something like that with the two kids. It's like, what are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> I still uh, say that yeah. <laughs> as a single mom. <laughs> and then how did you end up in Manhattan and stationed at Fort Riley? It was a uh, a volunteer position up here to Fort Riley where we had the 10th ASOS Air Support Operations Squadron. That's a squadron that is on Riley to be able to integrate air power with the 1st Infantry Division. So we have all sorts of different specialties and my specialty being intel is I would work to integrate the Air Force's intelligence capabilities with the 1st Infantry Division's plan scheme maneuver for what they're going to do on the ground. And so make sure that they got the intelligence they needed at the appropriate time from the Air Force. And then we have other, most of the squadron is what's called our TACPs, Tactical Air Control Party, but they get certified as JTACs, and those are the guys that are like on the radio when things are going really bad and calling in the airstrikes for the Army, typically. Mm-hmm. There's other circumstances they could be used, but that's you know kind of the classic role, but that's what most of them did. And speaking of like the kind of like narrow class or time frame coming into the military, how you can have like way more experiences, right? So here at Riley, I was like in like 16 years or so by the time I got here. And so a lot of the guys that are, are kind of my length of service were older within the squadron. There's a lot of young guys that are doing this job. And so the guys are my age. It's just like they were, according to the young guys, just like, amazing they were like heroes because they they did all this stuff they did so many operations i had this one guy telling me about how he called in this airstrike from sitting outside of a helicopter that was revolving around this big building and they called in the airstrike it was like a um, bomb manufacturing place or whatever and it was just like these explosions going off all over the place and i just see him on his mic and all just circling the (laughs) the uh the building so Oh, but wow. it, so all kinds of amazing stories. And it's just, you know, right down the street and all this incredible events that these guys have been a part of. And yeah, it's just right down the street. And and that's crazy because, you know, I've 
grew up in Abilene and have lived here and Fort Riley has always been there. And, and it's never, I've never really had any people that I, my dad knew a couple of people, but I've never really had much connection with Fort Riley or anything. It's always there. Mm-hmm. And I always curse at them when my windows are <laughs> rattling. And I'm like, I have an old house, please. <laughs> but other than that, you know, I, I feel very disconnected from it. And I, and I think that things like this are great so that, you know, we get to know you guys are more than just over at that place that's <laughs> down the road, but, you know, part of our community. Right. Yeah, it can be difficult for um, people in military areas that have a lot of service members come in in and out of their lives because I've had the experience and it's hard to blame people, but I've had the experience where folks find out you're in the military and they're like, oh, okay, you know, nice, nice to meet you. I'm glad you're here. You know, they're not rude or anything, but they're just like, I don't want to have another friend that's going to leave in two or three years and have to start over with, you know, so it's like, you know, some people in military communities can be kind of like hard to connect with. I like imagine. that because they just kind of experienced it previously where they just, you know, people are here for a short time sometimes. But I think it's important in our community to kind of understand that that could be a way that some people respond to having sometimes transient members in their community. Mm-hmm. But you still should interact with them in a way that's, you know, welcoming and don't make people feel like they're less than because they're not going to be here for a long time. One of the things I love about working in the library is all the, seeing the different kinds of people. And I always try and make it a uh, part of what I do is if I, someone comes in, they're, oh, we're, we're just new to the town, you know. And I, I always like to say, welcome here. And sometimes you can tell that they're a military family and they want to talk about where they were. And I work down in children's quite a bit. So I get to see the families come in and that's really great. And I do think it's neat how we're a safe place. You know, it's like, oh, hey, there's a library. I think I'm going to go there. Mm-hmm. You know, I know what those are. And that, that kind of leads into our next question is, you know, we get a lot of military people who come up to use our computers because we have cat card readers. And I did not know that. Yes, we yeah. do. Man, that would have saved have me trips to Fort Riley several times. <laughs> For uh, military members who are listening, we have cat card readers that you can use at our computers. So, um, you know, that's something. And like I said, down in Children's Library, we see that quite a bit. Have libraries been a touch point? Have they served a similar role for you throughout your career? Hmm. We definitely have connected a lot with the Manhattan Library. Well, and especially with having kids throughout this whole time. Mm -hmm. Yep. Or did you know that the public library in the areas where you were, because I know that like Fort Riley has its own library and and I'm assuming other forts are the same way. Mm -hmm. Do the other public libraries in other cities, I'm assuming they're all welcoming to military members, but, you know, they may not as play as big of a role. Right. Well, you know, I don't know, I guess... Probably not, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't. I wouldn't chalk that up to them not being welcoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably just the way our family life was oriented at the time. But it definitely has been here in in Manhattan. It's been a, a place that, especially our little kids, come into reading time and all. Oh, nice. It's always a good place to go. And we moved here in January 2017, 2018, and it was very very cold. And we're coming from San Antonio. <laughs> And um, so we're trying to get out and about and to do things. 
but the high temperature was negative seven uh, the day we moved in and our pipes were frozen. Oh, lovely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so the library and the Discovery Center and even the mall, a uh, little play area at the mall were places we're frequenting because it, it's a community space that the little ones could, could enjoy. And so that was definitely something we we utilized when we first got here. And the teen center has been something that my son has started utilizing a little bit since starting middle school. Awesome. But I think he's a little intimidated by some of the older teens that are it can in be there. That. Yeah. So <laughs> a little Lord of the Flies situation up in there. I don't know. That's why we need a bigger teen. So <laughs> Eric, if you're listening. Sorry. I'm the, right. I'm the teen librarian. So if he ever, just tell him to come up and talk to me. The Lord me. of the Flies reference was an exaggeration <laughs> and it's not an re- actual reflection of how the teen center is. But this is just how I'm imagining it whenever he's explaining it to me. But well, I, we had an architecture class, and they were designing the library. And I said, well, when you think of a teen area, we've got, like, two sitting areas and then, like, a place to play games and then computers. And I was like, you need a place where teens can come in and just kind of observe mm. or sit at a table by themselves or do something because it is very intimidating. And right. I do know that. So if I see someone kind of peeking and looking in, I'm like, hi, come on in. They just have to deal with the crazy librarian. Yeah. Well, he's been angling for an Oculus for like three Christmases or something like that. <laughs> and that is definitely not in our Christmas budget. So um, he was super excited whenever he found out uh, there was one here. Uh-huh. So he, he yeah. used it a few times. I've had, I had a lot of kids come in and say, look, Mom, <laughs> look how awesome <laughs> this is. What is one of your most memorable experiences from being in the military? Whew. There's probably quite a few yeah, after two decades. There's a lot. Uh, so I had my retirement ceremony two months ago on September 12th because September 11th was a Sunday. So I had it on September 12th. And that was a great experience being able to kind of relive some of the stories and all and be there with my fellow service members and my family. That was a, a really great experience. But man, there was, <laughs> it's been so many. There was... One time where I was in uh, Uzbekistan, I was in the service for like 10 or 11 months at the time, and I was sleeping on my cot in a tent in in Uzbekistan, and I had my captain come up and wake me up. She's like, Airman Moro, wake up. There's a uh, C-17 waiting for you on the the flight line. Get all your bags. You're going to Romania. Oh, my uh, gosh. (laughs) And she said, I'm like rifling through getting all my stuff. I have a little lantern on my head to try to get all my uh, stuff in my bag. And she's like, okay, they're going to take you to uh, Rhine Main Air Base in Germany. You go and find the uh, Sato travel people, and they'll get you tickets to go to uh, Romania. And I was like, yes, ma'am. And a long journey with many different adventures along the way getting there. But they ended up getting me one plane ticket to Bucharest, Romania. And then the other ticket was a bus ticket to drive to Constanta, where I was being stationed. And I was the only person on the bus. And the bus driver didn't speak English. So Costanta is about the same size as New Orleans. The bus route was to take me to wherever the terminus of this route was. It was not to, to the, the Americans. <laughs> it, was, it was just to, to a in front of a hotel. And so, wow. you know, this is before we had all the smartphones and everything. This is 2003. So I, I arrived in front of this hotel. I was like, well... I have my government travel card, and I have a lot of bags, probably, you know, like 70 pounds worth of bags I'm lugging around. So I check into the hotel, and I noticed the lady there spoke pretty good English. 
And you ever heard of OPSEC? You know, you ever heard of this term? The operational security. Basically, you know, the loose lips sink ships okay. thing from World War II. Okay. But they call it, say it's called OPSEC. And so you're not supposed to talk about, like, what the military is doing generally, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so um, I just threw all that to the wind, all my OPSEC training. And I was just <laughs> like, um, you know, I'm kind of a, stuck in a position here. So I asked the lady at the desk, I was like, uh, do you know where all the Americans are staying? <laughs> <laughs> and she says, yes, actually, I saw it on the news just that night. It was like on the nightly news that we're all staying at this hotel on the Black Sea in the town. Costanta is like a port slash Black Sea resort town. And the Air Force had rented out this entire resort hotel on the Black Sea. And they're like, yes, they're staying at the La Perla Hotel. And I was like, okay, great. And so it's like three o'clock in the morning. I lock up my room, leave all my bags in there. And I start walking through the city. It's like a, a mile and a half away or something. Start walking through the city to go to the La Perla Hotel. And they have all these stray dogs that were there. And they got this idea that I was their pack leader. <laughs> <laughs> and so it had started snowing and all this. So, so I'm trudging through the snow at three o'clock in the morning. This pack of stray dogs just follow me through the streets. And... I get to where I can see the hotel, and I start having people yelling at me in, in Romanian. Well, it was the Romanian military that were doing the uh, outer perimeter security for the building, and they were yelling at me to get down because I wasn't supposed to be approaching the building. And they, oh. had, they had me on the ground yelling at me with their AK-47s and oh, saying something, and, and I was, like, pulling out my cat card. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, American, American. <laughs> And As so, the dogs are licking you. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so they let me in. Long story short, I ended up getting to where I needed to go. But uh, wow. my my leadership didn't realize that I was still in the hotel because I just thought, oh, so I'm staying in this hotel down the street. I just walked there every day. You know, the guys <laughs> with the AKs know, know me. They're like, okay, come on in. <laughs> and I ended up getting fussed at like a month later by the personnel officer because I had been there for a month and they had no record of me being there. Because I just <laughs> wandered up in a bus and walked through the snow. <laughs> so all sorts of little adventures like that. I can imagine. I was expecting you to get there and they got the wrong person. You weren't supposed to go to Romania. I mean, I could have been the wrong person. They would have just rolled with it. <laughs> oh, Rome. We met Rome. Sorry. <laughs> How did having a family change your view of your military service? And you kind of spoke about this a little bit as like, yeah. oh, now I've got this family. This is Yeah, so... It made me uh, keep re-enlisting mm-hmm. to where we had steady income, that's for sure. But um, so that that's one instance. And then also um, we talked about getting the different assignments and all. Something that Cassie and I thought quite a bit about was the timing of our assignments mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. coincide with the starting of high school for our girls. Yeah. And so we took our assignment to San Antonio where when our oldest girl – she was going to be starting high school, so she mm-hmm. it didn't quite work out this way, but she would be able to go to the same high school throughout. And then we volunteered to come up here whenever Haley, our K-Stater, was in middle school. And I was like, we should wait until the end of the school year. But she was like, I want to go now. I want to, you know, I'm going to start in the middle of the school year at Eisenhower. Oh, uh-huh. And uh, I was like, that sounds intimidating. But she was just excited to do it and excited for the move and excited to be the new person, you know. So um, she did, and she met her best friend that year, and they're still best friends. They're roommates. Oh, uh, that's K-State. awesome. So, yeah, 
a lot of times, you know, just envisioning me being them, like putting myself in their shoes, yeah. I would be kind of really intimidated. Whereas they were just like, this seems like a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, that's cool. That doing they, something new. They were into it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's something, that's um, one thing about, you know, having the family in the military is trying to think strategically about when you're moving and all to make sure mm-hmm. that their lives are disrupted as little as possible. Also, an interesting thing about uh, having a family in the military that a lot of civilians probably don't see is, you know, we have base housing, mm-hmm. whereas suburbs basically in the middle of the base, and they'll have all the NCOs, not all, but a lot of NCOs in these, these houses with all these kids, and the military basically will give you a bigger house if you have more kids if you live on base, right? Mm-hmm. So there's no like economic reason to not just have more kids. <laughs> <laughs> and so you get, so I, I, I'm telling that, that the happiest place for like a seven or eight year old is military housing on, on base. I'm sure. There's just so many kids. They're just running around all over yeah. the place doing whatever. And man, they have, they have a blast. So we stayed at base housing just once for two or three years at Lackland. And all the kids were in the house at the time. We had, actually, we had Cole, our youngest, who's now six. We had him in our house on base housing at Lackland. And so that's the only house we've had the whole family living in at one, at time. one time. It was a great time. But it, so that's something that a lot of civilians don't understand sometimes. Is there's a, a whole little community. It's a whole little world that's on base. Mm-hmm. My kid's dad was a military brat. I know that's not always looked at, but he told me about his time in Okinawa and how they just had this full, huge base to just ride their bikes right everywhere they wanted to go. And it was just this gang of kids yep. just riding their bikes all around while the city was just like right on the other side of the fence. And he thought that was really yep. cool. No, and no, I call my kids military brats. Okay. So I, it's very common. I didn't know if there was a more <laughs> PC the, term. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think people will see it as derogatory. Okay. So civilians have a struggle with work-life balance, and in the military, it seems like those two things are much more entwined than it is in the civilian world, especially if you're living in base housing. You're not really going away from work. You're still on base. How did you manage to balance that over your career? Was that a struggle, or is it just something that you became accustomed to and it wasn't something you even thought about? I am in a lot of ways like a natural-born slacker. I am a pro at balancing my work life. Sometimes it's a little too much life and not enough work. <laughs> so between being a natural born slacker and being a New Orleanian, it's you like it. I you just go made. with the flow. <laughs> but no, so the biggest struggle obviously are on the deployments and it's not a struggle on my end. It's the struggle on my wife and the kids end without me being around and being able to help and then managing different emotions about me being gone that the kids and Cassidy has that often is a struggle being the deployed member each deployment is its own thing and it can be a terrible situation but oftentimes we get kind of in these grooves where you're eating sleeping working and the days are going by and there's no real life it's just your work is life it kind of felt like covid working from home <laughs> yeah. where every day was the same day You'd wake up and you'd step over to your computer and work, and then there wasn't that separation, really. Yeah. So, yeah, some of the deployments can feel like that. Actually, on my deployments that were with flying units, which is probably uh, eight of them or so, we would have what's called, they they have the air tasking order. It's called the ATO. That's basically the air battle plan. 
for that day. So it will start off ATO Alpha, then the next one's ATO Bravo, right? And then it'll have two designations, Alpha, Bravo, to keep track of all the different days. And so that's how we would track our days would be the ATO day. We would like not know if it was Tuesday, Thursday, (laughs) November, (laughs) January. It was just like, this is ATO Alpha X-Ray. Oh, okay. I remember back at ATO Zulu Yankee when, you know, you did. Oh, so. wow. That's that's completely foreign to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then it's funny. So Christmas, when we're deployed at the chow hall, they'll have like a kind of different meal. Like they'd have turkey and gravy and cranberry sauce, you know, whatever. But we would, you know, work right through it. Right. But when it was Super Bowl Sunday, all the flying operations stopped. <laughs> <laughs> we're not doing anything that day, and uh, we'd watch the, watch the Super Bowl. So that was like really the big day was Super Bowl Sunday, and a lot of the other holidays just kind of came and went. <laughs> so you recently retired from the Air Force. Has it been a big transition becoming a civilian and transitioning out of the military, or is it just kind of still surreal yet? Yeah, I think for a while it was kind of surreal. But I do think because when we were staying in the same house in the same town, it was a a little less dramatic of a a separation. There was the whole building a resume, getting on LinkedIn, which is just, I mean, it's it's gross. (laughs) (laughs) It felt so dirty uh, trying, you know, saying so many good things about yourself to so many different people looking for a job and all. There was definitely stress around making sure I had income before my active duty pay stopped. Mm-hmm. But I found a job in time, and it's a it's a it's a really good career, and I'm excited to be in it. I think it's gonna be it's gonna be great, and it allows me to work from work from home. Um, oh, cool! Exclusively, due to position is always gonna be remote. It wasn't like something they were doing temporarily, so I get to work from home and have no commute, and you know just it's really really good so far you know learned a lot of things but my transition was definitely helped by a lot of the military programs that they have to you know make sure that you have a a more seamless transition because it can Mm -hmm. be very difficult Mm -hmm. moving from the service into civilian world but they have what's called a skill bridge program where you can set up an internship to learn new skills and get some things on your resume for finding a new position in civilian life and then they have a lot of programming around what to expect when you separate mm-hmm. months mm-hmm. worth of it. Some of it's like death by PowerPoint, PowerPoint <laughs> so to speak. But um, I mean, you still have people that are there to, to help you get through it. So that's good. But even as someone uh, who I felt was really prepared to separate, I mm-hmm. found that it was pretty stressful. Really? So I could see someone that maybe didn't have the supports I had around me that Mm-hmm. could have a, a really hard time of it. So if you, if you see a, a service member in transition, have some grace. <laughs> and Absolutely. I know people, I, and I did the same thing, I guess, when people were uh, separating. But the question, so what are you doing after? Oh, yeah. I mean, that does show that you're you're interested in the person. That's nice. Mm-hmm. But after a while, it was just like, I don't really have anything. I don't really have anything I yet. I don't know yet, so yeah. stop. <laughs> and we're in the military, we're used to knowing, like, if you have an assignment, that's usually like, four to six months in mm. advance, you know, right? And in the civilian world, they don't hire people like more than even two months in advance is like yeah. a ridiculously long, long time. And so you have this date in the future where you're not going to get paid anymore uh-huh. and you have to get a job before that date comes, right? It's not like if you're a civilian and you have a job and you're like, okay, 
I'm interested in looking at other places. And so you start applying for a job while you have a job. Mm -hmm. And if you get a job, you're like, okay, I'm going to put my two weeks in. Doesn't it doesn't like work that. like that. And so this is timing thing. You're like, ah, so that, oh, yeah. that exaggerates the, the stress. That's for sure. But all in all, it, it really worked out well. It's just there was a lot of needless worry, I guess, mm -hmm. in retrospect. Well, going from two decades of doing something that you are familiar with and know and then huge shift. Right. Okay. Our final question, what do you wish civilians knew or understood better about military service? I mean, you've told us a lot already that right. I had no idea. So, yeah. I mean, that's that's a lot. I was just dropping knowledge nuggets <laughs> knowledge all over this all over uh, podcast. Well, so I think that the biggest thing for people to understand about how they could affect service members' lives is that the American people are who determine, you know, what we do, right? Depending on how you engage with our democracy can have really serious carry-on effects for service members. Mm -hmm. And we often get a lot of attention on issues immediately whenever service members go into traumatic situations. But it's literally decades of repercussions whenever we send our service members off to war and they need to have the supports all through that process. And so mm -hmm. it really is an incredible amount of costs that we are exposed to whenever we put our service members out into conflict. Mm -hmm. So being an engaged citizen is probably the number one thing you could do to support service members. That's fantastic. And so timely after yesterday, well, I guess whenever this <laughs> airs, <laughs> you know, voting and making sure that we do participate and we do pay attention. Being close to, to Fort Riley, we, we do hear and read a little bit more about how some service members are affected. So right. I think we're a little more connected to that maybe than other people may be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say that voting is good. Voting is the minimum of mm -hmm. being a citizen in a democracy. So, I mean, there's a, a lot of other things that you could do and be engaged with and bring other people along to engage in our public life. It's an interesting outlook that I have not thought of before. Mm -hmm. Now, it's the people that you are voting for that make the decisions that ultimately affect the military. So I don't think a lot of people probably have that concept in their mind. They're just focusing on, I don't like that person, so I'm going to vote for this person. Or I like their stance on this one thing, not realizing that their view of what we should be doing internationally might kind of throw military lives into chaos. Mm -hmm. Right. It's one of those sacred cows almost, a veteran in our American public life, that we need to not just say, we support the troops, you know, mm, kind of mm -hmm, thing. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure that we are doing the things, asking the appropriate questions to why we're doing certain things and what are we getting out of it as a country, as a responsible nation state on the global stage, and that we're not needlessly putting our fellow citizens in direct harm's way and then the repercussions of over decades of putting them out there. That's wonderful. <laughs> I've learned so much. And like I said, being next to Fort Riley for so long and not really having much interaction with it, I, I really appreciate getting to know a little bit more about it. And when I was in grade school, I remember we'd go over when it was easier to get on base and it wasn't hard now, but I remember it was a lot of fun. We always enjoyed going over there. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a learning experience, I think, for everyone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Thanks Great. for having me. Thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about Read MHK or sign up for the program, you can go to our website, 
mhklibrary.org. There you can find book suggestions based on each month's themes, log the books you're reading for the month, and find information on upcoming programs. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at refstaff at mhklibrary.org. Thanks for listening.